Welcome to the Investing in Oil and Gas.com podcast, where Mike brings you in the game and on the drilling rig with real life oil well drilling experiences, 3D seismic shooting, geology, engineering, investment terms, strategy, and more. Your host brings over 20 years of experience with hundreds of oil and gas wells and companies including ExxonMobil, Shell, and BP. Degreed in petroleum engineering from Texas A&M and later receiving a professional engineering license, today, Mike is the president of an oil company that explores for oil using its own 3D seismic equipment and then drills oil wells on the prospects that they find on seismic. Mike wrote the book, Investing in Oil and Gas, selling thousands of copies in print, digital, and audiobooks. You'll find it on Amazon. And now, Mike May. Well, hello again. This is Mike. And today, I would like to talk about mud logging. I would like to take a fresh look at mud logging. It's something we all know about in the industry, but I don't think we cross-examine it or question it or talk about it. It's just sort of, well, I'm mud logging, and it sort of takes care of itself. There's two points I want to get across in this talk. Number one, when I'm mud logging, what I really want is a core. I think that's a great thing to keep in mind when you're planning your mud logging, when you're talking to your mud logger. When I am mud logging, what I really want is a core. And number two, I think there's a lot of inefficiencies in the standard methods for mud logging. So I want to go through today what is mud logging very quickly, why do we do it, how do we do it. I want to break down the procedure into its steps. And then I want to show you some of the inefficiencies that I see that are widespread and then tell you some suggestions that I have for improvement. So starting off, what is mud logging? Mud logging, which is also called surface logging, or what I would call drill cuttings logging. If I was to say it in one sentence, I would say mud logging is recovering drill cuttings at the surface while a well is being drilled and making observations, measurements, and analysis of those drill cuttings. And let me back up and define drill cuttings. First of all, whenever we're drilling a well, of course, you probably know we use a drill bit, and the drill bit cuts a hole through very thick intervals of rock. So when we cut a hole, a deep hole in the ground, call that a well, and in the process of doing so, the bit turns, cuts rock, and we pump fluid down the drill pipe, out the bit, and then back up to the surface. And that drilling fluid, as it's flowing up the outside of the drill bit, but inside the hole toward the surface, when it's moving in that direction, it lifts all of those cuttings that the drill bit drills. Of course, if the drill bit just cut a hole, but it didn't lift the cuttings out of the way, it wouldn't be able to cut new holes. Then at surface, that mud with all of the cuttings in it is run over a piece of equipment that separates the cuttings from the drilling mud. And that piece of equipment is called a shale shaker or oftentimes just a shaker. So the mud with the cuttings in it drops down over this piece of equipment. And what it is, it's a big screen or mesh and it's physically shaking back and forth or oscillating, if you will. But it's being shaken at a fairly high frequency 
you know, many times a second, back and forth, shake, 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 and it has a screen or mesh on it that allows the fluid, the mud fluid, to fall through the mesh, but the mesh is small enough that it catches most of the cuttings on top of the screen. So it's just like a strainer or a sieve, same concept. So you're allowing fluid to fall through the holes in this screen, and you're catching the drill cuttings. The screen is usually at an angle, say a 10 degree angle, something like that. And so gravity, as those cuttings build up on the screen, and the fact that the screen is turned at an angle, sort of like a ramp, the cuttings will gradually fall down or slide down the ramp just because of gravity, and then they will fall off at one end. That's where most of the cuttings go when a well is drilled. They fall off into a, a big pile of cuttings. And if you think about it, it's quite a large volume because it's the entire volume of the wellbore that is removed. So if we drill, in our case, we're drilling seven and seven eighths size hole. We have a seven and seven eighths bit. So we drill a seven and seven eighths inch hole and we might drill 5,000 feet. Well, that's an awful lot of volume of rock that has to be removed and it's brought to the surface. As I said, when we're mud logging, what I really want is a core. I would love to core the entire well. I don't really want a mud log. I want a core. But coring is roughly 10 times as expensive as mud logging. So we core only in places where we really need it or where it's most valuable. And then we mud log everything else. So what is mud logging? Mud logging is capturing as many of those samples as we can at the surface when they're coming off of the shale shaker and then making observations, measurements, and analysis of those cuttings. So what is mud logging? Mud logging is recovering as many of those drill cuttings as possible at the surface while a well is being drilled and making observations, measurements, and analyses of those cuttings. Why do we do it? Why do we mud log? Our purpose in mud logging is to determine what formations are present at what depths and what, if any, of those zones contain oil and gas. We may have several follow-on reasons. One, we may want to do or determine what is the best next step when we're drilling. Maybe we're drilling a horizontal well and we're evaluating the zone in a pilot section that's vertical. We may want to determine stopping points for the drill bit. So you may use your mud log to determine exactly when to say stop drilling and set intermediate casing or stop drilling and TD the well. You also can use your mud log to determine whether or not to complete a well, whether or not to run casing or abandon the well as a dry hole. And you can also use the information from a mud log to help you complete the well much later on. For example, you'll determine where to perforate or where to stimulate. Of course, a wireline log may be better for those things, but the mud log information helps. Ultimately, the reason we run a mud log is because we want to recover the maximum possible amount of oil and gas from every well. Okay, so how do we do it? I would like to break down mud logging into its steps and possibly point out some inefficiencies 
in the industry standard methods and suggest some improvements. So I'd like to break mud logging down into three parts and then we'll talk about these three parts. But first there's catching a sample from the shale shaker before it is lost forever. Second, there's cleaning the mud off of that sample. And finally, there's analyzing a clean sample. So first, let's talk about catching a sample from the shale shaker before it's lost. Anything that goes over the shale shaker and falls in the ground or falls into the pile of all the cuttings is essentially lost forever because you don't know where it came from. So how do we do it? We start at the depth indicator in the doghouse or wherever you can read the bit depth on the drilling rig. And you start there, typically it's in the doghouse, read the depth, at least note it in your head, and walk straight down to the shale shaker, or sometimes called the shaker. And this is the piece of equipment where the cuttings are being separated from the drilling fluid. And there's a point where the cuttings are falling off of the shale shaker, and they're either going to be falling off onto the ground or into a tank or some kind of a collection container, but they're gonna be going into a large pile. What you need to do is hold a strainer, very much like a kitchen strainer, underneath the point where the cuttings are falling off the end of the shale shaker. So you're catching them before they fall down onto the ground or into the container the very large container or pile where all of the cuttings are being collected. Now I've seen people use actual kitchen strainers from a grocery store, okay? And you can use those or you can use some other strainers that are purchased from uh, geologic supply companies that are for mud logging and they have screens or mesh in them of a particular size. So you can buy strainers from mud logging companies or geo supply companies with specific mesh sizes. And I would suggest getting a range of those strainers of different sizes. And I'll talk about why in a minute. In a pinch, you can use the grocery store strainer, but I'm going to suggest that we use the, the strainers with the various mesh sizes that are known as opposed to a random thing from the grocery store. So we catch the sample before it falls on the ground and we know the depth that the bit was at when that sample was at surface. This is the end of the first step. This is a major step right here. Simply catching the sample, even though it hasn't been cleaned and even though it hasn't been analyzed and even though it hasn't been sorted based on mesh size, you have to get this first step. If you don't do this, it doesn't matter what else you do. You have to get this first raw input, okay? A lot of people, I think, mess this up. The standard, quite often in the industry, is to catch perhaps one sample every 10 feet. Or I've even seen recently one sample every 20 feet. And supposedly, if you're serious, one sample every five feet. In my personal opinion, all of those are inadequate. I would aim for more like one sample every foot, and there's no reason not to. The only reason not to is if you want to hold on to, oh, we've always done it this way. But if you want a good mud log, then aim for one sample a foot. 
maybe not for the entire well, but certainly over your pay zone, you know, leading into it in the pay zone and below the pay zone. There's no reason why you can't aim for one sample per foot. So that's the big thing that has to happen first. You have to catch a sample. If you miss it and it falls down on the ground and goes in that giant pile of cuttings, you've lost it forever. Okay, so you have to catch it. The next step is removing the mud or cleaning it. This is a completely separate step. This is step two, okay? This can be done immediately after you collect the sample or it can be done hours later. The industry standard way is to collect the sample, then immediately clean it as if it needs to be cleaned immediately, and then put it in a bag and then take it over to the mud logger for analysis, which is the third step. What I'm gonna say is, let's just catch it and set it aside, okay? We don't need to clean it immediately and we don't need to analyze it immediately. The most important thing we're trying to do right now is collect one sample every foot. So at least you've captured the data, okay? It doesn't need to be cleaned immediately and it doesn't need to be analyzed immediately. One of the inefficiencies that I see in the industry is this notion that they want to do all three steps before they start the next sample. So they want to catch a step here at 4,000 feet, for example, and then they want to immediately clean it and then they want to analyze it and then go catch another sample. Well, of course you want to do one sample every 10 feet which is inefficient as can be. It's, it's just poor, poor coverage, poor data, poor everything. Because you plan on going through that entire cycle, you want to do all three things. What I'm saying is, let's break this up into three steps and they don't all have to be done in sequence. You don't have to go through collecting, cleaning, and analyzing before you collect the next sample. Now, typically you have the people with a financial interest in a well are in a big city somewhere, totally uninvolved, and then you have some people out on location that are doing all the work. And so if you're not involved, you're not gonna understand this. But if you're on location, you'll see that usually you have one or two so-called mud loggers or geologists. I don't know, I shouldn't say so-called, but these are high paid, highly qualified technical people, and you're gonna pay a lot of money every day for them. And Often you have just one of them on location, or nowadays it's common to have two of them on location. They can work in 12-hour shifts, and one of them can sleep, and one of them can work. But even if you have two geologists or mud loggers on location, you only have one awake on duty at any given time. And they quite often will ask someone else to collect the mud samples, and that someone else is often the derrick man, who's obviously not in the derrick while we're drilling, right? You're just making connections and making hole. So he's got some free time. Or the motor man, who may also have some free time. Or occasionally the mud logger may come out and get samples. So in my view, all of these are not the best idea. In my view, this job, this first step of collecting samples prior to cleaning them, just simply collecting them, making sure we have them, should be done by a dedicated person. And that dedicated person should come out to location with no other job in mind than I'm here to collect samples. A dedicated person doesn't have any other jobs 
on the well site. A derrick man has other things to do. He's going to get asked to do other things. He might clean the substructure. He's got other things to do. Same thing with a motor man. He's going to go work on the motors. This is a side job for him. And then the mud loggers over here trying to analyze samples. So they're not interested in collecting as many samples as possible. In fact, collecting more samples just means more work for the mud logger. So if you're the person that's interested in the results and the performance of the well, you want to get as many cutting samples as possible. And there's a couple of reasons. Number one, you don't want to miss any oil and gas zones. That's the whole purpose of drilling the well. So you want to make sure you find any oil and gas zones. Well, if you're doing industry standard once every 10 feet, then you better hope that your zone is at least 10 feet thick. There's a, a possibility that anything under your sample rate of once per 10 feet could be missed. And you might say, well, then once every five feet is enough. Yes, if you're solving a math problem in high school, then theoretically that's enough. But there's enough variability in real life here that you need to oversample to make up for unknown errors and mistakes. So in other words, let's say you're using the Derrick Man, which you shouldn't be. Well, the Derrick Man is not going to do a perfect job of getting it every 10 feet. He's going to get it every 12 feet, then 7, then maybe 18 feet, you know, then <laughs> 4 feet. It's not going to be a perfect, you know, sine wave where every time we cross the zero line, we get a sample. It's going to be a human mix of things, not a perfect sample rate. So that's number one. Number two, you don't know exactly where these cuttings came from when they're coming up the hole. You don't know exactly how fast they came out of the hole. Supposedly, you know the time to circulate bottoms up. In other words, the amount of time it takes a, a drill cutting with the bit that you raise it all the way up to the surface. I mean, we can calculate it. We can estimate it. But you don't really know. And so to, to leave it to one sample every 10 feet just seems ridiculous to me. My aim, my target is once every foot, especially anywhere near a pay zone. So I catch it one sample per foot and I have a dedicated, dedicated mud sample or drill cutting collector on location. It's a person I hired, contractor or employee that has no other jobs. And you really need two of them if you're going to use them for any length at all because you need to have the same concept where one can sleep and one can work. So they can work in shifts. So I say try to catch every sample every foot and have a dedicated person there. Because it's ridiculous to have the derrick man or the motor man as part of your crack formation evaluation team. Okay, You need to be in charge of that team and... You need to be in direct control of them and tell them exactly what you want done. And that's their only job. They're not getting distracted by something else. The mud logger also has other interests. They don't want to analyze that many samples, right? They're going to be a little bit upset that you're making them work harder than normal. But the thing is, it's good for everyone because we're trying to get the performance here out of the well. Now that we've taken a sample, regardless of whether or not we've cleaned them, and regardless of whether or not we've analyzed them, as we're drilling through the pay zone, we're getting a sample every foot. And we're setting those aside. Now, they can be in a very small bucket, okay, because this is unclean samples. You know, a one-gallon bucket, a two-gallon bucket, something like that. Peanut butter size plastic jar, something like that. 
and you can just write on the on the lid with a sharpie exactly what depth they're at. Or if you're doing them every minute, you probably don't have time to go up and look at the drillograph and see the depth. But you can start, say it's noon and I'm at 4,000 feet and I walk down and I do the first sample and on that first one I write, you know, noon, 12 o'clock and 4,000 feet. And then afterwards, say for the next 30 or so, I just write the time. So the next sample I get a minute later, I just write 12.01 because I don't know the depth because I'm not going to walk back up to the drillograph. I just write 12.01 and I put it beside the first one. Then at 12.02, I catch another sample and I write 12.02 on there. And this is going into a large jar. It would be a very large bag, okay? The point is it's a relatively large sample because we're going to clean it, we're going to remove a lot of the mud, and then we're going to have a much smaller sample after it's cleaned. But the point is to get it, don't let it fall on the ground. Clean it later. So now we've got a bunch of jars on the ground. We got one at 12 o'clock, 12.01, 12.02, 12.03, 12.04, and on and on. This is not terribly hard work. You're going to have 60 jars per hour. So you just move one jar every minute. This is a very reasonable amount of labor. Another thing you can do when you're near a pay zone is slow down. You know, make all this work. Go ahead and pay a little rig time. If you're on footage, go ahead and pay a little rig time and slow that drilling down. So instead of letting them blast 60 feet an hour, slow them down to 10 feet an hour. 10 feet an hour is a foot every six minutes. And if you're getting one sample, you know, every minute, then you're going to have six samples a foot. Now we're talking, okay? Because remember, what I really want when I'm mud logging is a core. I'm trying to create a core out of mud log samples. I would like to have, in a core, I have every inch, you know, for 30, 40, 50, 60 feet, however long it is. That's what I'm trying to do here. Okay, we've got all these samples. Now, while I collected one every minute, Maybe I've got 10 samples here, and of course the mud logger is going to be behind, right? There's no way that they can go through the entire analysis of a sample every one minute. So they're going to get behind. Well, you just need to tell them that's the way it's going to be before we get started. Okay, so we need to get away from that concept of, oh, I have to do everything before I move to the next sample. So we're collecting all our samples because now I've got all my samples sitting here in jars say plastic jars, with the times on them, which I can later correlate back to the depth. Because say at 12.30, I'll go back up there and I'll check the, the depth at 12.30 and I'll note the time on that one. And then we'll be able to interpolate all of the other ones that were done. You know, we've got a depth on the 12 o'clock sample. We've got a depth on the 12.30 sample. And then we'll be able to correlate all the samples that were done at 12.01, 12.02, 12.03, 12.04. I shouldn't say correlate, I should say interpolate. Now we've got all our samples. Next thing we need to do with the first one is clean it. Like I said, it doesn't have to be done immediately. It's okay to leave it for a few hours, leave it for a day, however long it takes. So we take our first sample, which is in, say, a plastic jar, roughly the size of a peanut butter jar. And we take that and we pour it into a strainer. And hopefully we're using that group of strainers that have different mesh sizes. Okay, not the one from the grocery store. Although you're going to see the grocery store strainer out there a lot if you're not taking charge of this. But I'm going to say we use it with a strainer and we're going to experiment with different mesh sizes. But just pick one for now. And we dump the cuttings in the strainer. And then we hit the top of that with a water hose. 
So we start to wash the cuttings that are in the strainer and we're washing the mud off of all these cuttings. And we're doing this with a five gallon bucket underneath the strainer. So I'm holding a strainer with the cuttings and the mud over a five gallon bucket. Now I'm washing, washing, washing with fresh water from a water hose. I'm washing the cuttings and I'm washing the mud off of the cuttings. And some of that mud and, and all the water from the, uh, from the water hose is falling down into the five gallon bucket. So now the bucket is gradually filling up with a dirty, muddy water, right? But also some of the cuttings are going to fall through the mesh of the strainer. And that just depends on the size of the mesh of the strainer. So some of them, if they do, they're going to fall all the way to the bottom of the bucket, simply because cuttings are rock and they're heavier than water. So they'll go to the bottom of the bucket and we'll wash, wash, wash. Finally, there'll be some cuttings that are left in the strainer that are clean, but they're still in the strainer because they couldn't fall through the holes. And then other cuttings will be on the bottom of the five gallon bucket. This is where the magic comes in. You've got some good cuttings, some large cuttings that are good cuttings up there in your strainer. Okay. And you've got some smaller ones down in the bottom of the bucket. And it seems to be industry standard to take those cuttings out of the bottom of the bucket and put those in a sample bag and then take the cuttings that are in the strainer and discard them. Well, you're throwing away some large cuttings in the strainer that are very good and are very helpful to a mud logger. Mud loggers like to have cuttings that are as large as possible. When they put that under a black light, you can get more out of your analysis when you have larger cuttings. Every single mud logger will tell you that they'd rather have larger cuttings. Especially nowadays with PDC bits, you tend to get smaller cuttings because the, uh, the PDC bit grinds up the rock to much smaller sizes than the trichome bits. Well, here we are with another inefficiency in the industry standard practice. We've cleaned our cuttings. We've cleaned all of our cuttings. That's good. But now we've got some small ones in the bottom of the five gallon bucket because they fell through the strainer that they bought at a grocery store. And then we've got some others that are still inside the strainer. So what I propose is pay attention to the size of the strainer. Try a few different sizes. And I'm talking about the ones that you can buy from a geo supply company. Try a few different mesh sizes and see which ones give you the best results. Don't just let the motor man use a strainer from the grocery store. Because then what, what happens is, is you're limiting your analysis to only those cuttings that fall through a grocery store strainer. <laughs> it's the truth. So I wish what you would do is try a number four strainer, try a number five strainer, try a number six strainer, and look at the cuttings that fall through there and have your mud logger try those. You can, you can use the same sample if you want and, you know, from the same depth. And here's one with a number three, here's one with a number four, here's one with a number five, here's one with a number six, and see which ones get the best cuttings in your mud logger's opinion. Now, you can certainly look at them yourself under a microscope and make up your own opinion. The only sort of wives tale that goes along with this is, is you might say, well, why wouldn't you just keep all of your cuttings? You know, all the big cuttings that are in the strainer, if they're all cuttings, why wouldn't you just keep all of them? You know, why even bother with a strainer? And the idea, the story that I'll pass it along 
is that supposedly your drill pipe's banging around up the hole, you know, while you're drilling, and it's banging pieces of rock off the wall way up the hole. And those pieces of cuttings are larger because they're not scraped off by a bit. They're just sort of banged off by the trauma of the drill pipe slapping against it. And so they come off in larger chunks. And so supposedly at the surface, we're trying to filter out those large chunks that were knocked off by drill pipe way up the hole and separating them from the smaller cuttings that were ground off and cut off by the, the bit. That's the story. I don't know that it's always true, but you should take a look at your cuttings and decide for yourself. Um, and if your large cuttings look a lot like your small cuttings, then you probably just simply have large and small cuttings from the bit. Whereas if you have some small cuttings that you know look like, say, ground up sandstone, and then you've got large cuttings that look like bits of shale, you know, from way up the hole, then you know, okay, I've got two different things here. And that's sort of the magic of playing with your strainer and figuring out which is the best strainer size to use for your mud cuttings. I don't recommend using the Derrick Man or the Motor Man and a grocery store strainer, but I would say that's more than half of the wells out there probably use that method. So I'm saying have a dedicated person and work with those mesh sizes. Try those different strainer sizes. See which ones give you the best results. Also, when you're cleaning, remember I said the cuttings will fall to the bottom and then the water's dirty? Well, then the next step is to gently pour out the water out of the bucket. So you pour the dirty water out, the muddy water, usually back into the mud pit with the rest of the drilling mud. And then you're left with a little bit of cuttings on the bottom. They're wet. And you reach in there with your hand and scoop those cuttings up and put them into a sample bag, which is nothing but a cloth bag. By the way, you can buy these from a company called Hubco. That's H-U-B-C-O. You can buy it from Hubco directly or you can buy online from other resellers. In fact, if you go to some of those very large e-commerce sites and type in Hubco geologic sample bags, you'll probably find them. So, and these are the same sample bags that your mud loggers use. So, in that process of pouring the dirty water out of the five gallon bucket and leaving some samples in the bottom, notice what I didn't say. What I should have said first was, before we even start, wash out the five gallon bucket. Make sure it's completely clean. So the five gallon bucket needs a wash. Well, that almost never happens. When you've got the Derrick man picking up these samples, that five gallon bucket is just sitting somewhere on the walkway, you know, over the steel pits. It's not being washed. He just gets most of it out with his hand, puts it in the sample bag and he's done. We needed to immediately wash that five gallon bucket out again so that those cuttings did not contaminate the next sample. So this is another place where we're just messing up all the time. That's why I separated out cleaning as step two. Cleaning is its own step. You need to pay attention to what you're doing. You need to clean out that five gallon bucket before you start. And then you need to pay attention to what strainer you're using as you're cleaning. Okay, play with different strainers. Don't just rely on the one from the grocery store. Okay, it might not be the optimum hole size for your cuttings. And then of course, clean the bucket so we don't have contamination. Now, third is analysis. So now that we've cleaned the cuttings, we use the clean bucket and we optimized the mesh size so that we got the best cuttings in our sample. And then we wrote down the time or the depth. If we're, you know, if we're doing them one a minute, we're probably just going to write down the time that we see on our watch. And then every 30 minutes or so, we'll go and get the depth from the doghouse. 
and we'll be able to interpolate everything in between. The mud logger can do that. Now we've got clean samples from every foot of the pay zone. And if we slow down, which I think you should, and when you're drilling the pay zone, you'll have even more samples per foot. Okay, so you want to make sure you do this. One thing you can do is watch your mud log as you're getting close to a pay zone and then have them stop, just completely stop the bit and circulate bottoms up and keep circulating until you're not getting any more cuttings out of the mud at the surface. You just don't see any more cuttings at the shale shaker. It'll either go to zero or it'll go to some very fine amount that never goes away. But you should see a great drop off at the surface. So once you've had that great drop off, then start drilling ahead into your zone or maybe you're 10 feet above your zone, something like that. Then drill ahead, drill through the pay zone and watch those cuttings. And then you know any cuttings that come from that point forward, you know came from that depth and deeper, whatever depth you stopped at and deeper. So that's called control drilling. Or you can just slow down. So you're going to go through a 30-foot interval, 50-foot interval, whatever it is, and you go slow after having stopped and circulated bottoms up. Then you know any cuttings that you get after that came from that interval. That's a great thing to do as well. Now, your mud logger is going to be having high eyebrows over there because suddenly you have a whole lot more samples than they've ever seen anyone collect. So hopefully you talked about this before the job. <laughs> and that has to be okay with them. So they're going to get behind. You're going to collect a whole bunch of samples and they're not going to be able to keep up with you, at least in that interval. And they can just catch up later. But we don't want to miss the data. And they'll have another chance to catch up when we're doing our wireline logging, So, which is probably going to be pretty soon because here we are drilling the pay zone. The final step is analysis, and then they can do that. And then another thing you can do, you can buy a fluoroscope. You can build your own fluoroscope, as we've done. And you can do your own analysis. So maybe you will never analyze all of these samples, right? Just because you collect a sample, step one, in a plastic jar, doesn't mean you have to clean it, doesn't mean you have to analyze it. You can, say, collect one per foot then you might just clean one out of five of those and then have them analyze those samples. But at least you have them. So if there's any questions or if you wish, gosh, I wish we'd gotten more samples. I sure would like to see more of this interval, especially once you find some oil. You're going to want to see everything above and below it and know more about it. What you don't want to say is, well, we only got one every 10 feet, and so this was it. Well, phew. That just means your zone is somewhere between 1 and 19 feet thick, and you got one sample to look at. That's not good. We all know that in science, the more samples you have, the more statistically significant your final uh, conclusion is. So getting back to the, the point, just because you collect doesn't mean you have to clean. Just because you clean doesn't mean you have to analyze. I think it's very reasonable to collect one sample a foot, maybe more if you slow them down. And then you can clean all of those. The same person that uh, was your sample catcher can also be the cleaner after you're done, after you've stopped drilling. And once the bit's no longer moving, you've circulated bottoms up, there's no more returns, then that person can move over and start doing cleaning. Notice we don't have the mud logger doing either of the first two steps, catching samples or cleaning samples. 
so they only have to worry about analysis. And they're very high paid, so why not use them on that job? And that way they can analyze as fast as possible. And you can tell them how many you want to analyze. One per foot, one per five feet, one per 10 feet, whatever that is, you can have them go through and do one set of analysis. And another thing you can do is you can take some of those samples, since you have so many of them, you can go over and analyze them in your own private fluoroscope. You can put them under a black light in your own trailer, in your own truck, back at your hotel room, whatever you want. You can do it during the job, you know, while the well is being drilled, or you can do it a month later. And so that gives you some verification. That gives you some quality control. You're not completely dependent on what this mud logger says. You can do your own analysis. You can take those cuttings to another mud logger and they'll see that and they'll know that you're serious and that's good for everyone. Okay, so let me wrap up. What is mud logging? Mud logging is recovering drill cuttings at the surface while a well is being drilled and making observations, measurements, and analyses of those cuttings. And that's part of the larger effort of formation evaluation, which includes mud logging, coring, open hole wire line logging, and drill stem testing. The purpose of mud logging is to determine what formations are present at what depths and what if any zones contain oil and gas. And we also use the information to help us in the drilling process and to determine whether or not we should complete the well. In other words, part of the formation evaluation, should we complete the well or should we abandon it as a dry hole? And we also use the information to help us do a better completion. And if we use these suggestions that I'm making in this episode, we will not miss a pay zone. And number two, we will have more reliable, more accurate results in our mud logs. Why will we not miss a pay zone? One, we have a lot more samples, so we're aiming for one per foot instead of one every 10 feet or every 20 feet. So we'll have a more statistically significant sample size and we'll have more accurate depths because we're getting more samples in sequence between given times. So our depths are gonna be more accurate. And we also have more reliable results. Once again, we have a lot more samples. So if we have 10, 12, 15 samples in a 15 foot interval and they all have oil in them, that's a lot more meaningful than having one sample that has oil in it. Okay, so you wanna have more than enough samples. And we'll get the largest possible cuttings because we're gonna pay attention to our mesh size. So that will help with our analysis and we will have no contamination of our cuttings because we're taking the cleaning part of this seriously and making sure that that five gallon bucket is cleaned out in between the cleaning job of each sample. One sample does not contaminate the next sample. And finally, we have quality control. This allows you to double check the mud logger. The mud logger will see that you've got a lot of samples and you're looking at them, you have your own fluoroscope and you're also taking them with you so they need to get it right now while we're in the field. Everyone will benefit from this. You know, everyone will do a better job under these circumstances and then it'll show up in the performance of the well and that gives everyone better and better uh, financial opportunities. Thank you again for listening and being on this podcast. I appreciate it. Our website is investinginoilandgas.com. That's investing in oilandgas.com. There's a place to sign up for an email list. If you're interested in drilling opportunities, you'll probably want to be on that list. 
And let me just say again how much I appreciate you being here. It's it's a lot of fun to do these podcasts, getting some great feedback. I enjoy hearing from everyone. There's an email address also on the website. So if you want to send an email, you'll find that there. Anyway, thank you. I really appreciate you listening. Visit us at investinginoilandgas.com and join our email list.